This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Emotions are like the weather. They come and go whether you're prepared for them or not. And unless it's a perfect 70 and sunny, you'll need the tools to live comfortably in all elements. Build those tools in therapy at betterhelp.com super. Hey, brother. Guys, I am not going to lie to you. Today's video is a doozy. It involves nine dead bodies, Yetis, radiation, military involvement. Did I mention Yetis? And of course, Disney's Frozen. Oh, I love it even more. One of these things is not like the rest. But actually, yes, you did hear me right. And speaking of Frozen, it's been a particularly exciting week if you are a fan of Disney, as they have just announced sequels to three of their absolutely massive properties, including Toy Story, Zootopia, and of course, Frozen. I'm not exactly sure who needed or wanted Toy Story 5, official petition for it to be the Woody's Roundup origin story, just saying. Speaking of the past though, that is where today's story is going to live, in a 64-year-old Russian mountaineering murder mystery. And well, I say murder, but even that is actually part of the overall mystery here. Because to this day, nobody is 100% sure what happened over 60 years ago when nine hikers were found dead in the Ural Mountains on a cold February night. What I'm speaking of is known today as the Dilatov Pass Incident. It has been subject to speculation for literally decades for a couple of different reasons. One is that nobody was actually there to know exactly what happened, and two is the condition of the bodies as they were discovered later. Which is to say, scattered across the mountain in various states of undress, with unusual and oddly gruesome injuries. So it was no surprise that people really wanted answers. And what I'm sure absolutely nobody expected literally decades later is that a plausible explanation as to what happened here might be thanks to the movie Frozen. As a warning for today's episode, it will contain graphic descriptions. We will include chapter markers in the video description and an alert before we go into it if it's something you need to avoid. Okay, so before we dive on into this topic in earnest, I think it is really important to point out the fascinating new discoveries and inventions that are made in filmmaking. This is especially true in the world of animation where artists work really hard to ensure that environmental forces are as physically accurate as possible. And what it ultimately leads to is some groundbreaking new technology that can sometimes have applications beyond the world of creating the film. It has actually happened on numerous occasions over the past several decades where in order to solve a problem on screen, new technology just had to be invented. Sometimes this might be something that overall feels like it would have been pretty simple. Take for example, Violet Parr's hair in the Pixar movie, The Incredibles. At the time in the world of animation, creating long hair was incredibly difficult to do. So they had to invent a process to accomplish this goal because Violet's hair is so critical to her character. It's something she physically hides behind at the beginning of the story, but by the end of the movie, her growth is shown in the way that she has it pulled back. This truly was a massive hurdle for animators to get past, but they were able to make it work. And by the time Incredibles 2 came out, they were just plumb showing off. Someone was probably like, is it absolutely critical we see Violet blow drying her hair? And everybody else was like, the people who know, no. And while it may not sound that important to more accurately depict this, you know, teenage girl's hair, there are other occasions where it was much more significant. For example, in the film Titanic, one of the long-standing mysteries about the wreckage of the actual ship beneath the sea was whatever happened to the famous staircase that we see in the movie. After all, 
the rest of the ships down there, how do you misplace the staircase? One of the common explanations before the creation of the movie is that a certain type of wood-eating mollusk just actually ate its way through all of the wood, but other pieces of wood were still prevalent around the ship. So why was the staircase gone? Well, for the film, they actually went to the original plans for the original Titanic and painstakingly and accurately recreated the staircase using the same plans. And from there, to I'm sure what was the utter dismay of the craftsmen involved, they sunk it. The wood, which is very buoyant, broke away from all of the footers and literally floated to the surface. It was actually a particularly dangerous day on set because they didn't know that this was going to happen, but it ultimately offered a really great explanation as to where the actual staircase for the original ship went. My final example before we dive into today's story properly is going to be from Christopher Nolan's film Interstellar. Nolan was working with theoretical physicist Kip Thorne to figure out how to accurately display a black hole on screen. It is honestly a story unto itself that deals with an enormous number of math and equations and simulations, but what they ultimately ended up with was not only beautiful, but also accurate. And while I'm not sure that we can say that we can fully understand all the mysteries associated with black holes simply because we can depict one, today we might be able to successfully explain an otherwise unsolved mystery thanks to technology that was created for the film Frozen. Our story is going to begin in the year of 1959 with a man named Igor Dyatlov, who at the time was a student at the Ural Polytechnic Institute and formed a party to go on a skiing expedition in the Ural Mountains of Western Russia. The party of nine were all accomplished skiers and hikers, and their goal upon completing the expedition was going to become grade three certified hikers, which as far as I can tell would just mean that they would be allowed to lead even more difficult hikes in a much more official capacity, which to be completely honest with you, sounds like something that I might have done myself in college. Like, hey, do you guys wanna go camping in the snow for a week so that we can like rank up our hiking abilities? Guys, before we continue, we need to give a huge thank you to one of my all-time favorite sponsors, Bespoke Post. I can sincerely tell you that one of my all-time favorite days of the month is when I get my box of awesome from Bespoke Post. Last year, I got really into gardening with my wife, Alice. So in the past couple of months, I picked up the Terra box. Well, it looks like a pretty intense and big knife, it's actually a very useful gardening tool that I've already put to good use. And before that, I got the Aged Box, which has this really cool aging kit so you can sort of make your own bourbon, which I had a lot of fun with. Plus the tumblers included, instantly my all-time favorites. And one of the coolest things about Bespoke Post is that they curate all of their boxes by working with small businesses and emerging brands to come up with a huge variety of cool stuff to choose from. So even at the start of each month, picking out your next box is an absolute blast. They'll always suggest something based on your previous purchases that they think you'll like, but you can always switch if you want to. So for me, my next box is going to be the Purified box, which comes with this really cool self-cleaning water bottle that has its own UV light. So it can actually purify water in less than five minutes. How cool is that? And if none of those sound right for you, I totally get it, but there's so much other cool stuff to choose from, and they have a handy quiz at boxofawesome.com that helps narrow in on the exact right items for you. And they release new boxes every single month across a huge variety of categories. They're all valued at about $70, but come in at a fraction of that cost. Plus, you can get 20% off your first monthly box when you sign up for a subscription at boxofawesome.com and enter promo code SUPER 
at checkout. I can honestly highly recommend this either for yourself or even as a gift for someone else. Giving them the ability to go through and pick something that they want every month is just a lot of fun. So again, that's going to be boxofawesome.com promo code super for 20% off your first monthly box at checkout. One last time, boxofawesome.com promo code super. Link is in the description down below. In any case though, this particular group took off into the mountains on January 27th. And one of the really cool things about it is that they were taking really advanced and complete diaries. So we have a really good idea of what happened for the first few days of their expedition. Four days into their trip, they intended to make their way through a mountain pass, but poor weather conditions caused them to deviate west towards Kolasiakul. Kolachiakal. The good news is I can very easily pronounce the translation of that particular word, which is dead mountain. The bad news is that it is appropriately named. Realizing their mistake, but also losing daylight, they just decide to camp on the side of the embankment. While this should have been a fairly routine thing to do, this would sadly be their last night. Now, let me pause there to give you a little bit more context about the kind of communication that would have been involved, because again, this is in the 1950s. Before leaving for their trip, Dyatlov, the group leader, basically told the governing body that on February 12th, when they returned to their starting point, they would send a telegram telling everybody that they were safe. This means that it was going to be 12 more days before anybody even had the slightest idea that something had gone wrong. And even at that 12 day mark, there wasn't a huge amount of concern because delays on hikes like this, especially at that time, were just pretty common. Thus, it wasn't until February 20th that search teams were finally sent out to look for the lost crew. And what they found was ultimately pretty shocking. It took over two months of searching and a snow thaw to successfully track down all nine bodies. But eventually all nine of them were found with an absolutely bizarre combination of injuries. Just as a heads up, this is the part of the video that will contain some graphic descriptions if you'd like to skip ahead. Several of the members were found with their skulls cracked and with their chests smashed in. One was missing an eyebrow while others were actually missing eyes altogether, and one member was even missing their tongue. On top of that, they were all in varying states of undress. Some were even barefoot. Some just had a single boot on, others were in underwear, others were fully dressed. And from there, it gets even weirder somehow. One of the members was found to have like radioactivity on them. It was also determined that they had cut their way out of their tent to escape. And not all the bodies were even found near each other. Some were left right there at the camp. Others were found nearby in some trees and others in a creek. In what is otherwise an incredibly remote location with no other obvious threats available, experts were basically left with the question of what happened? What could have caused such a random array of injuries and knocked out a group of experienced hikers all in one fell swoop? Why would they be forced to cut their way out of the tent? Why would they all be in varying states of undress? The immediate explanation was that it was just an avalanche, but it was kind of an unsatisfying answer at the time. For one, avalanches leave pretty obvious signs of, you know, themselves, given that it's quite literally just a huge movement of ice and snow. But beyond that, hundreds of expeditions in this exact same area have taken place since this event, and none of them have ever reported avalanche-like circumstances. On top of that, the slope of the terrain around the encampment wasn't even considered to be steep enough to be subject to something like an avalanche. Nor for that matter, was there any evidence of adverse weather taking place on that night. 
And so naturally, when there's a super high desire to have an explanation as to a tragedy such as this one, and there's not a really satisfying explanation, people kind of start looking in less obvious places. Like, you know, Yetis. Welcome to the Himalayas. Okay, so obviously this didn't take place in the Himalayas, but still, anytime you have a case like this where there are random and vicious injuries involved, it kind of starts to feel like anything could be on the table and myths feel like they have a little bit more salt. After all, again, going back to the avalanche theory, most deaths caused by avalanches aren't this level of brutal. Is it possible that the team was attacked by some type of predator in the night and this is why they had to escape so quickly in whatever state of dress they were in? Could that possibly explain why they were harmed in such unusual ways? Well, no. It was actually confirmed that six of the members of the group actually fell victim to hypothermia and not some type of blunt force trauma. Not to mention the footsteps that were left leading away from the camp were consistent with just regular walking, not like you were running away from something. Can you see why this would be so perplexing? Like there was some reason to cut open the side of the tent to escape, but then not to rush away quickly? This ultimately led to another theory that the injuries could have been caused by Soviet military testing of parachute mines. The path that they were on was actually fairly close to where testing had been known to have been taking place, and the type of injuries associated with parachute mines were fairly consistent with how the team was found. So that theory basically goes like this. The first explosion was drastic enough to cause them to frantically get out of the tent, where a second explosion was the one that actually caused the damage. An offshoot of this particular theory that helped support it was the idea that the mines that were being used were in fact radioactive, which would then potentially explain why one of the team members was found with radioactivity on them. Oh yeah, it's all coming together. Except it's not all coming together, Kronk, if that even is your real name, which I, which I guess it is. But that is not the explanation because ultimately scientists determined that the radioactivity would have been everywhere on all of the team members, not just one of them. Plus then what would that have to do with the 2013 classic blockbuster movie, Frozen? Well, we are finally there, where it all starts to come together decades later, where software for the movie Frozen did such a fantastic job of depicting the actual nature of an avalanche that it caught the attention of one Johan Gomm. Johan is the head of the Snow Avalanche Simulation Laboratory. Incidentally, a job I never knew I always wanted. Yeah, I worked down at the, uh, the Sassel. That was, that was snow because I simulate, you get it. Gom was so impressed in fact though, that he actually asked Disney if it would be okay to use the software to try and get to the bottom of the Diet Law of Pass incident. He combined this data with information from a study done by General Motors in the 1970s, where they used cadavers to figure out what levels of forces would break human ribs so they can make better seat belts. Genuinely a sentence I never thought I would say. All of this information together would only actually be useful if you could somehow prove that the surface that the team was laying on was rigid, similar to the car seats in the General Motors test. But by a weird twist of fate, this was actually the case. Because at night, in order to sleep, expedition members would actually set up their beds on top of their skis. Thus, it was determined that while it would have been overall a fairly small avalanche, a large block of snow could have landed on the crew's tent. And it would have indeed produced the kinds of injuries found on the expedition members. 
So while we are once again back to the explanation of an avalanche, this time it is with a lot more information to support the idea and a much more satisfying explanation. The circumstances would be pretty unique and rare, but just because it's rare doesn't mean it's impossible. We did say earlier that the slope that the team was sleeping on wasn't actually steep enough in order to properly cause an avalanche, but that's not totally true. The terrain that they chose appeared to be level on the surface, but this was only because of the sheer amount of snow that had been built up on the very steep ground deep, deep, deep below the snow. So in actuality, the ground that was way down there was in fact steep enough. Even so, we once again go back to the problem of the weather. There would have needed to be a significant amount of more snow to actually cause the weight of the avalanche to go into effect. But as we said, there was no snow that night. So what happened? What happened is something known as catabolic winds. Basically, it was snow from higher up on the mountain that was blown down to the campsite where the crew was, creating a sort of artificial snowstorm. So the theory today is that the avalanche occurred, buried the team, and actually killed some in the process. Others were able to cut their way out of the tent and make it to the woods in just whatever they happened to be wearing while they were sleeping. But they obviously couldn't survive the cold, and that's where hypothermia reared its really ugly head. From that point, it seems like whatever surviving team members were left were then trying to use the pooled resources and clothes that were available to stay as warm as they could for as long as they could. Obviously, this could have worked for some period of time, but as we said from the beginning of the story, the entire team ultimately perishes. As for the missing body parts and radiation, there's also explanations for those. Basically, it comes down to scavenging animals and the kind of oil that was used in lamps during the time of this particular style of expedition. And basically, at least as far as we know, that's pretty much what happened. A small and very unusual avalanche. Since then, a mountain pass in the area has been named after the group, the Dyatlov Pass, and a prominent rock outcrop in the area serves as a memorial. And honestly, there are even more completely unbelievable details about this particular story. If you'd like to do some additional reading, we'll be sure to link all of our sources in the description down below. For me, what makes this story so fascinating is that while it is absolutely a tragedy of an event, it also showcases the technology that we're creating in the process of creating these amazing films and the good that they can do for the world. Otherwise, guys, as always, thank you so much for watching. Be sure to like this video and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. If you'd like to see another cool piece of like how history has influenced media, you can check out this video right here where we go into the truth about Sokka's space sword. Otherwise, until next time, bye.